morning again. So we're starting our new series, um, hashtag, because we're trendy. Uh, do you know him? Um, I, was, I, I like social media. I don't know how much you like it, but I'm on Facebook, and I, and I like it because I've reconnected with some friends, some friends from school. And there's some friends from school who most assuredly are not Christian. <laughs> Um, you can tell that through many different ways. Um, one of the ways is that they actually say, quite bluntly, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in this stuff. And uh, over Easter, one particular post grabbed my attention. One of my friends posted something online. And one of his acquaintances um, answered it. And uh, it's the comment that, that my friend's friend put on it that really prompted me about some of the things we're going to look at today. We're looking at Jesus, real and revealed. And this is what the comment said, I don't think Jesus has, okay, forgive the grammar, by the way. I don't think Jesus has, is, has existed at all. It only says, at Bible, a science fiction book invented to divide the world, somebody invented. Now, that's a powerful sentiment, isn't it? Well put, powerful speaking. Jesus is fake. He's made up. He's a myth. Someone's made it up. Someone wrote it down as a bit of a laugh that got out of hand. That kind of idea that Jesus isn't really real. You know, for many of us here, we might think that's ridiculous. But why is it ridiculous? How do we know? I'm um, really uh, I'm passionate about one particular area of theological study, and that's called apologetics. I've said that before. Um, apologetics is not just about saying sorry about Jesus. It's more than that. It's about defending the Christian faith. It's about putting the reasonableness of it across, because I think Christianity not only makes sense, but it makes sense of the world. And that's what apologetics does. It defends the Christian faith from kind of not necessarily biblical, but um, kind of logical and historical terms. And the fact is that there's a huge amount of historical evidence that Jesus existed. Now, forgive me, but I'm going to bore you. What's new? Thanks very much. I give up now. These guys, I'm going to mention them to you now. Josephus, a Jewish historian, Tacitus, a Roman um, governor, Pliny the Younger, who um, was a letter writer, wrote to the Emperor Hadrian. Celsus was a massive critic of Christianity. Lucian of Samosatus, Suetonius, they were um, ancient Roman writers who worshipped the Roman gods. Thales and Phlegon wrote in Greek. And the Babylonian Talmud is a Jewish piece of literature um, based on the Hebrew scriptures. None of these people are Christians. In fact, some of them are fairly anti-Christian. And these are some of the things that these guys say about this character, this person, Jesus. Josephus, even though it's kind of, um, it's kind of debated about whether it was edited a little bit, he writes um, as a Jewish historian about um, Jesus, a wise man, if indeed it was good to call him a man because he was a doer of such wonderful deeds that people gladly took his truth. He won many of Jews and Greeks over to him. He was said to be the Messiah. And he was accused by the principal man, handed over to Pilate, who condemned him to a cross. He goes on to say, which is debated, um, he appeared to them on the third day for the prophets of God had foretold these things and thousands of other marvels about him. He also refers in another place about Jesus' brother James being brought up before the Sanhedrin. Tacitus, this Roman guy, he writes in his um, annals, he writes that Nero fasted the guilt of the fire of Rome 
um, and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians. It's positive. Christus, Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty under Tiberius at the hands of the procurator Pontius Pilate, and I love this, and that most mischievous superstition checked at that moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful find their center. And then Celsus. Now, this is Celsus considered Jesus a magician, but listen to what he says. Jesus, on account of his poverty, was hired to go out to Egypt. While he was there, he acquired certain powers which Egyptians pride themselves on possessing. He returned home highly elated at possessing these powers, and on the strength of them gave himself out to be a god. Celsus is trying to go against Christianity, but what do we hear from a person who is against Christianity? We hear that this person, Jesus, did miraculous deeds, that this person, Jesus, was at some point in Egypt, that this person, Jesus, was regarded as God. uh, Suetonius writes a number of things about um, Jesus. He says, um, the Jews were expelled because of disturbances at the instigation of Christus. And then we have Thallus and Phlegon, both of whom are quoted by a guy called Julius Africanus, who talk about an earthquake and a darkness and an eclipse that lasted from the ninth hour to the sixth hour at the same time as the Passover. All of these are historical non-Christian documents. So, only from these documents, only from these non-Christian documents, this is what we find out about this person, Jesus. Just see how much is there. First of all, he existed. Quite a useful one. He was a Jewish teacher. Many believed that he performed wondrous works, including healings and exorcisms. He was rejected by Jewish authorities, crucified by the Romans as an instigator of unrest under Pontius Pilate, during the reign of Tiberius. His followers believed and told others that he was alive again. The story and the belief spread way beyond Palestine, and by AD 64, there was a large number of Jesus' followers in Rome, the capital of the empire. And the followers believed and worshipped him as God. And many of these followers denied the gods of Greece and Rome and were killed because of this faith. All of those are not from the Bible. They can be found in the Bible, but they are from non-Christian, almost adversarial sources. That, to me, sums up a lot of Jesus' life, doesn't it? And his ministry. That's what we learn about Jesus. But the prime sources that we've got are, of course, the Gospels. And, of course, Paul's letters, which were actually written earlier than the Gospels. And these are some of the things that were written in our Gospels. In Luke, it says, many have tried to put together compilations of Jesus' story as they were handed down to us by eyewitnesses. Luke compiled eyewitness accounts. With this in mind, I've carefully investigated and wrote an orderly account so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught already. And then John, we believe John the Apostle wrote John's Gospel, and it says this, this is the disciple, John, who testifies to these things and who wrote them down or had his people write them down. And Jesus did many other things as well, but this is John's testimony. He then writes a letter. At the beginning of the letter, he says, this is what was from the beginning we heard, we saw with our own eyes, we touched with our own hands. 
It says, we proclaim to you what we've seen, what we've heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us, making our joy complete. I love this from Peter. We didn't follow cleverly devised stories. C.S. Lewis said one of the things, he he knew about the the novel as a form of literature. He said the, the disciples of Jesus, who were northern fishermen, highly uneducated, came up with the brand new concept of novel literature. I don't think so. They were reporting their eyewitness accounts. We didn't follow cleverly devised stories, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We ourselves heard the voice that when we were on the sacred mountain, that's the transfiguration of Jesus. And then Paul writes this. Paul writes this probably 15 years, only 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And he says, it was passed on to me that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. They appeared to Peter, then to the 12, and after that to more than three, sorry, more than 500 of the brothers and sisters, most of whom are still alive, who could have easily said, that didn't happen. <laughs> These are eyewitness periods of history that are writing these things down. And last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. These accounts in the Gospels are reliable accounts of the story of Jesus of Nazareth, based on eyewitness eyewitness accounts, the claims of which could have been challenged by others at the time, but in fact weren't. In fact, there were other Gospels around, but they were wrong. They were made-up stories, including about the cross that was apparently buried with Jesus, walking out of the tomb and talking. People said, that didn't happen. And so that gospel was rejected. So the ones that we've got have stood a certain level of test. There's something about the reliability of what we have in the written gospels that's called this fancy word textual criticism. Now, I told you I was going to bore you, but there's a reason, and you'll see the reason in a minute. These are historical um, pieces of literature. Herodotus, it was written down at 488, 428 BC. The earliest copy we have is 900 AD. Before that, we haven't got any copies of this book. That's a span of 1,300 years from when it was first written to the one copy we have, and there are only eight of those copies in existence, and we still think that's reliable. Tacitus wrote it in 100 AD. Our earliest copy is 1100 AD, a 1,000-year difference, and we have 20 copies. We regard that as legitimate. Caesar's Gallic Wars, written in 58, approximately BC. The earliest copy we have, 980, 950 years. We've got nine copies and lots of Latin scholars who've had to sit through Latin essays trying to translate this stuff. These are regarded as really strong bits of ancient literature. Now look at the New Testament, written between 40 and 100 AD. We have around 130 AD, our earliest copy of aspects of the the Gospels. We have the full manuscripts of the New Testament by 350 AD. All the books are in one place. Time spans 30 to 300 years until we have the full New Testament as we recognize it. But look at how many copies we have. 5,000 plus in Greek, over 10,000 in Latin, and then 9,300 in different other languages like Coptic and Hebrew and Aramaic. What does that tell us? It tells us that essentially what we have in that book or that device you've got in front of you, that New Testament is a reliable historical account of what went on. It's a reliable account of what we have. And all those different copies that we've got are approximately 99% in agreement with one another. That's huge. And the only differences are, are fractional, only a small amount of differences between them. What we read in the Gospels and the New Testament 
are reliable. They're eyewitness accounts, the same that have been handed down for centuries, and they are reliable ones that we can look at. In fact, the geek alert thing here, this bit of paper in the center there, that's in Manchester. It's the oldest fragment of the New Testament we have. It's called the John Rylands Papyrus. It's a segment of John's gospel. I've taken a few people to see it because I'm that sad. It's quite profound. You think that's the earliest bit of scripture we have, and it's from North Africa. And it tells us John's gospel is written really early. These are reliable documents. Now, why have I just spent some of this sermon boring you? Because Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. All this history stuff tells us we have a reasonable faith. No other faith is based upon such a foundation of solid historical factual basis. And because of this, it gives us a secure springboard into the swimming pool of faith. This is a reasonable faith. When people think, oh, you're a bit barmy to believe all that rubbish. Actually, look at all this proof. It doesn't give us 100% certainty, but it says we have a reasonable, solid foundation. These historical, even the non-Christian sources they, believe, they tell us what, to, what we know about Jesus. The gospels are reliable, but yet lots of people reject Christianity. They do so without knowing the solidity of what we believe and what gives us confidence. As Peter said, we are not following cleverly devised stories. So in the gospels, this is what we, this is what we find out. We find out what he was like. We find out what Jesus said. We find out what he said about himself, about God, about people, religion. We find out what he did. We find out about his family, his friends, his enemies, the geography and the customs of his life and his lifetime. We learn about him. What do we learn about him? We learn that he was hungry, that he was tired, he was emotional, that he was angry, happy, hurt, thirsty, lonely, that he sometimes needed his own space, that he was cared for by others, that he was misunderstood, that he was abused, that he was let down, that he was upset, that he was passionate and he was compassionate. He was calm and clever, wise, entertaining, and funny. He was kind, judging, and prayerful. What we discover, not just based on historical documents, but in the Gospels, we discover this. He was real. This is a three-dimensional person we read about. Not like the stone-cold statues with serene faces, or the 2D stained glass images, or detached Renaissance paintings with a halo hat on his head. Here is a real human being who is so much more. He was real. Read the Gospels. It's all there. And we can learn an awful lot about Jesus from the Gospels, from the New Testament, and we can understand it by knowing the context and details of the day. Last week, we did a, a game on uh, Easter Sunday, and the game was, um, who, which famous person have you met? And uh, I, I can't remember who the winner was. Was it the person who'd met? It was Zach, wasn't it? Yeah. That's right, someone from Man City, that, that's cool. Another the person in Life of Team won it because they met Norman Wisdom. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, I'm going to drop a few names. Are you ready? These are some people I know. If I had mentioned it last week, I would have won. So Gordon, Bear, good pal, Parky. I know these guys. You impressed? 
You're easily fooled, aren't you? I've only read their autobiographies. I know an awful lot about them. They're great reads. Gordon Ramsay, interesting character. Parky, so many stories. He drops names like anything. Bear Grylls, if you haven't read it, read it. Great story of a man of God in a very public sphere. I know an awful lot about these guys, but I don't know them. I don't know them. I've used that illustration before. I know that. And I'm going to tell you the story, which I've told you before, because I think it's important. As a boy, I was at a summer camp, and the leaders were convinced I was a Christian. I was about 10 at the time. They were convinced I was a Christian because I knew an awful lot about the Jesus story, about the Gospels, about the Bible. The truth of it is, I did read my Bible. I knew my Bible stories, but I loved quizzes, and I loved to win. (laughs) So I got a lot of answers right. And so they thought, oh, he must be a Christian. But yet something, even to this 10-year-old, slightly precocious churchgoer, I thought, I don't. I'm not a Christian. It was about a year later that I came to know Jesus for myself. I knew an awful lot about him. I knew I didn't know Jesus. And so we're on the road again. Luke 24, 13 to 35. On the road on the same day as Jesus rose from the dead, but these guys are not aware of that in in a lot of ways. We have two disciples of Jesus. They're not of the original 12, but of the extended bunch. They're walking away from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus, which is about seven miles outside the city. It could have been where they lived and they popped back and forward from from, um, Jerusalem, but notice they were walking away from Jerusalem. Someone Um, Sorry, they were downcast, they were sad and upset at the events of the previous few days. Their hopes were shattered. Their friend, their leader, their inspiration had gone. Remember last year, it was like a a celebrity was dropping every other day. And the outpouring of grief online, it was like, oh good, 2016's over. It was almost like the year had a vendetta against these celebrities. And there was a big outpouring of grief. Well, these guys, their idol had gone. Their leader had gone. Their inspiration had gone. And they're walking along, discussing it with each other. Cleopas, who's possibly the same person as the husband of one of the Marys at the cross, had said, um, Mary, the, husband, the, the wife of Clopas, could have been him. And another disciple, possibly the other disciple, was that woman Mary, or it may have been another man called Simon. If we look at it further on in chapter 24, verse 34. Regardless of who exactly they were, someone comes up and walks alongside them walks alongside them. What an amazing picture of what Jesus does with us still by his Holy Spirit. In the midst of grief, confusion, questioning, and on our journey, he walks alongside. And we know this is Jesus. It's a very serious passage, but let's not lose the pantomimeness of it. We know who this is, and they don't. We know who this is, and they don't. Maybe they were unable to perceive spiritually who this person was. Maybe it was getting dark and they didn't recognize the man with a hood over him. Maybe they weren't expecting to see a man that they saw nailed to a cross a couple of days before walking alongside them healthily. Maybe, as I said in Mark, Jesus appeared in a different form to them. If you watch the BBC adaptation of the, of the series called The Passion, they actually have two different actors playing Jesus the main one who plays Jesus throughout the entirety, and then a different one playing Jesus here, and then when they recognize him, it goes back to the original actor again. It was an interesting concept because it says in Mark he appeared in a different form. Regardless of that, they didn't recognize who it was. And then see the slight kind of joy in this. Jesus says, what are you talking about? And then there's a sarcastic answer. Where have you been? 
Where have you been? Have you missed it all? And then they explain to the stranger about Jesus and the previous events. Please see there's a little bit of a smile on Jesus' face. These people are telling Jesus about Jesus. Telling him what had happened to him, not realizing that what they're saying about him is him. And they're telling him all about these events. They explain to the stranger that in some way that they are followers of Jesus, but yet they still explain that Jesus is a prophet. They still explain that he was the one who was going to save Israel, but he was dead. They still hadn't got it. They still hadn't got it. They'd seen and heard an awful lot about Jesus. They presumably spent time even in his company. They may have even been acquainted with him, but just like the rest of the disciples who were in the same privileged position, they still didn't know him. It hadn't clicked with them who Jesus really was. It's like they'd seen two bits of a jigsaw piece, two pieces of the jigsaw, and hadn't put them together to realize what they actually were. Then they even reported to the stranger that some women had said some ridiculous things. Remember, a woman's testimony was not valid in those days. That's the context that they believe in. They say, some of our women has come back with a crazy story that the tomb is empty and angels had spoken to them and said, he's alive. Even though others said they went and they checked, they've given testimony saying, yeah, it was empty. They still didn't believe. And then the stranger, that's not pious, pi- make a pious. The stranger goes, are you slow or something? <laughs> come on, get with it. This random stranger turns to them And as they're walking along, explains from Scripture what the truth of Messiah was. Jesus took them in their confusion back to Scripture to show who He was. How important a lesson is that for us to hear? If we want to know Jesus, look at His Word. Read the Bible. As I was told in my Sunday school, read your Bible. Pray every day if you want to grow. Simple. So many Christians, so many churchgoers don't. They rely on their knowledge of Jesus from songs, from traditions, from stories, from other people's experience, maybe even from myths that have built up around him. In preparation for this series, uh, and because I, I didn't want to give something up for, for Lent, I thought I'd take something on. So I gave myself this little challenge, and it wasn't a massive one. It was to read all four Gospels in those 40 days, straight after one another. Um, it was a bit like deja vu when you realize there's a couple of passages that are the same. I read them cover to cover over the 40 days. And that's not to say, oh, look at how great that is. But actually, I've known Jesus all my life. I came to know him in a personal way when I was 11 years old. I'm no longer 11. It's been a few years that I've known Jesus. I read these gospels cover to cover. I've read them before, and I read them all in one go, and I learned new stuff about Jesus. I discovered stuff about Jesus that I hadn't realized before, a newness of that knowledge And we're going to offer you loads of different opportunities. And one of them that we're just going to let you do today is to remember this from a couple of years ago. We did the E100, which went through the Bible in 100 readings. This is the Yorkshire version. It's called E-Jesus. No, it's 
the Jesus 100, it's 100 passages of Scripture about Jesus, from, from who he is, prophecies about him, the stories in the gospel right through to Revelation, which we're all experts in now, aren't we? And if you want to, maybe you and a couple of others get together and challenge yourselves to read through these 100 passages. Start an online group. Maybe do it as a small group. Maybe do it individually. Maybe this is your devotion for the next while. But 100 days of readings. We're going to give you other things to do over the next number of weeks as well. But there's one challenge. You're at the front here. Let me know if we run out. But so enthralling is this exposition of Scripture. What a Bible study to be at, eh? That they wanted the stranger to stay with them. And he did. And he sat down and he ate with them. And, and, and I realized I didn't click on. Um, he ate with them. And then he took bread. He gave thanks. And he broke it. And they have a massive deja vu. We've seen this before, haven't we? Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Lo, Jesus met them, risen from the tomb. Their hearts were burning as he'd opened up the scriptures to them to explain who he really was. They were experiencing an encounter with Jesus. These disciples had read their scriptures. They'd seen Jesus in action, but they didn't really know who he was. And more than research and information, Jesus revealed who he was to them. He is revealed by an encounter with him and by the understanding of who he is from revealed scripture. And then, what was their response? They didn't stay where they were. Perhaps they'd made it to Emmaus, but immediately they got back and they went back to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and they explained to them what had happened. And whilst explaining, you might read on, Jesus comes and stands amongst them to the 11. And then he does exactly the same thing. We read, he proved his reality to them as well. He did exactly the same thing. He explained to them and opened up the scriptures so that they could understand who he was, who he'd been saying all along he was, but they hadn't got it. Jesus does the same for us today by his Holy Spirit. We can read and read and watch and learn, and we can have lots of knowledge. We can have proof galore about the historic reliability of the Jesus event and the gospel accounts. We can go to church. We can pray our set prayers. We can play in the worship band, lead children's work, serve at lunch club, and yes, we could even preach a sermon, but we need the encounter with Jesus. We need the experience of meeting Jesus, of knowing him, of Jesus being more than just real, but being revealed. We have the evidence that we have a reasonable faith. Jesus was real. The claims he made are well testified. He wasn't just a Jewish teacher. He was a Jewish man who said he was God. Deal with that. Historical. We have explanation from Scripture about who he was. But we don't just read and have knowledge about him. We need to have an encounter with him. Otherwise, it's all head knowledge. It's all facts. It's not experience. So here's the challenge for us. We may know lots about Jesus. We may have even known him in the past. We may be really active even in our devotions we may like what we know about Jesus. That was a great character. But do you know him? 
Do you know him? This series came from, we had, we had a whole different series planned, which we might do another time. And then one day when we were sitting in team meeting planning Easter, um, with some tentative plans, we came up with the idea of Jesus meeting Mary and knowing her name. And we talked about meeting Jesus and ideas flowed. Then the phrase, do you know him, seemed to appear from nowhere. And lots of cogs seem to click into place. Hashtag, do you know him? A series about knowing Jesus. There will be times of sharing our stories relating these aspects to our lives. We're going to hear more stories like we started the past couple of weeks. We're going to hear more of those. And we want you to come and share those stories. But this question works on two levels. Evangelistically, do people know Jesus? Have they come to know him? And it works discipleship-wise. How well do you know Jesus now? Is it, like any relationship, an ongoing investment of time, of effort, of care, and growing? We wrote a list of characteristics of Jesus, and it went on and on and on. We've condensed them to, to this series, and we have a vision. And a vision that we've shared with other church leaders in the town for hashtag do you know him. To be a shared series. As we speak, I think Champions Church are doing this series as well with us. And we have a vision that next year, after, before Easter, more churches around Skipton and ourselves will be doing this series again. They're up for it. So here we go. We're test driving this series. And over the next year, especially running up to... Do you know him? Will be a missionary and evangelistic events, alpha courses and exploring Christianity's giving days, prayer meetings, worshiping together, working together, and witnessing together. Are you excited about that? Because I'm really excited about hashtag Do you know him? I want to get to know Jesus more, and you know what? I want more people to get to know Jesus because I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it. So over the next few weeks, we're going to come to know Jesus more. Maybe for the first time, perhaps a renewal of acquaintance, a time of getting to know Jesus better, an opportunity of introducing him to others. And each week we'll be hearing from God's word, but also from people's stories of how they know Jesus and the difference that knowing Jesus has made in their lives. Remember, it's not just about knowing about Jesus, but knowing him. So our question remains, do you know him? Do you know him? Amen. Ela.